Aleluia. Father, this day may our attention be captivated by your revelation as we have sung. You have displayed yourself, aspects of your being, evidence of your glory in the world that surrounds us. As the fingerprints of our Creator God are seen and the world that is, Lord, enveloping our existence, Lord, as we look into the reaches of space and as we watch the trees blooming, as we see the sun rise and set, we're reminded of your power, your glory, your faithfulness, your kindness, your grace towards us. But furthermore, Lord, I pray that you would draw our attention today to your self-revealed and special revelation, that which is recorded in your holy scriptures, written down for us, to reveal to us, to introduce to us your nature, character, that which is forever you, and that which you have planned to do in time, to ransom for yourself a people to the praise of your great name, to defeat the fallenness of this world and the consequences of sin that wreaks such havoc on our souls and all that was created. We thank you that your redemptive glory is seen in the salvation of the elect and that those of us who celebrate your amazing grace have seen your work in our lives. We also thank you, Lord, that your plan is so much bigger than any one of us individually but encompasses all your holy will and purposes from before time began. And now as we watch your power unfold through history, and as we see, Lord, the evidence and the proclamation of the same in the prophetic word, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to appreciate you all the more, and that we would repent of our sin in the light of your holiness, and that we would walk with consistent confidence in the ways and statutes and precepts and commandments of our God, recognizing their beauty, and their power, and that we would testify to the world through our changing life and our strengthening confession that Jesus is Lord and in Him is life and salvation. It's in that holy name we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. What a gracious gift the assembly of the beloved is today. And what a gracious gift are the holy scriptures which we have in our hand, I trust, today. I'd invite you this morning to turn with me to Psalm 119, our second Sunday of the month as we continue our series through this, the greatest song in all of literature. Today we cover the 11th stanza under the Hebrew letter Kaf is the title in our text. I'd like to add a subtitle to that, The Trial of Persecution. The aim of this morning's message is to equip the believer for hardship in times of persecution. As we have noted since the first section, stanza one, which is made up of eight verses, since then all the subsequent verses have presented to us a trial or a challenge that, faces, that a believer will face more than likely in his life and certainly the psalmist has encountered. Yet in each one of these examples, we find through multiple references to the word or covenant revelation of God, that his means of self-revelation in his holy word is sufficient for all types of trials. So with that, would you stand out of reverence as you're able for the reading of God's word? And let us consider Psalm 119 verses 81 through 88 under the calf section. Here is the holy word of God. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. 
My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So, kids, question for you. How many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet? Does anyone know the answer to that question, kids? Say it louder. 22 is correct. And you may recall that each stanza, grouped of eight verses in Psalm 119, is named or identified by a Hebrew letter. This is the glorious structure of this great acrostic psalm. The first section, each of the eight verses in the original language, begin with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And now we come to the 11th stanza. In this, the greatest song of all literature, and it marks, of course, the halfway point in the Hebrew alphabet. This acrostic psalm thus begins each verse with the 11th letter, Kaf, in the original text. And then we've noted an introduction, and now we see, as we have read our passage today, that there's a presenting trial. That presenting trial we could identify as persecution. And if you're continuing in the highlighter challenge that I've given you, I've been underlining or highlighting each reference synonym for the Word of God or covenant revelation. And by my count, we're right around 91. So with our, and this would be words like commandments, precepts, testimonies, law, promise, word, and so forth. So with our 91st reference to the covenant revelation of the Lord, and with our 11th stanza corresponding each verse with the 11th letter, calf of the Hebrew alphabet, this provides further weight to the great theme of Psalm 119, which I submit is the sufficiency of the Word of God. That sufficiency is demonstrated all the more in light of hardships. Stanza 11 proclaims thus, The Word of God is sufficient for the trial of persecution. One of the most difficult things the church has faced in all ages, believers in every age have faced from time to time incredible consequences and costs for following their Lord. How do we stand in a day when the culture is antagonistic and hostile and the paganism of the wicked religious ideas that surround us take aim at us and declare us their enemies? This is what persecution is, and it takes all different forms and shapes, everything from mockery to martyrdom. Well, how do we face this? Well, the trial of persecution is met with a sufficient means to survive in the Word of God. And the calf portion is organized accordingly. Now, there are other titles I had in running, uh, kind of competitors or runner-up titles, if you want to call it, for this section. I thought of naming this sermon or identifying this sermon by this phrase, smoke-damaged wineskins. So how many, show of hands, feel like a smoke-damaged wineskin? I don't see any hands. Well, maybe one or two right away. And the reason I don't see a lot of hands may be that that imagery is a little foreign to us. If I looked in your kitchen today, you likely have pots, pans, 
containers, thermoses, cups, mugs, etc. But wineskins aren't the most popular container these days. However, when we see the picture, the evocative metaphor of the smoke-damaged wineskin, I think you will, at least if not now, at certain points certainly identify with this imagery of being emptied, drained, and dried to some degree. And you're in desperate need of being restored and filled and reconstituted. So thus, smoke-damaged wineskin is a great way of describing what the effect of trials, hardships, and persecution can have on the hardship-weary soul. So furthermore, or as we continue, this is a fitting metaphor for the psalmist's plight as he cries out to God in his depleted condition. We see that showing up in verse 83. But you could also perhaps identify this message by this simple cry, Help me! Help me! This desperate interjection of verse 86 captures, if you will, the vulnerable tone of the psalmist's entreaty. Help! The person in desperate straits, in dire straits, cries. A last-ditch attempt, panicking as he loses control. Please, someone help me. This is the psalmist's cry. He does so through his prayer. And he doesn't beat as though uh, against, or he doesn't panic as though a drowning man beating against the waves. And he does not cry, help me, to an illusion of somebody coming, but in the end, he's just a victim of his own circumstances. His desperate cry, his appeal to the Lord, is offered exactly where the power to save relies. He cries out to Yahweh, his God, the one whom he knows, has steadfast love and has shown it to him, the one who has delivered his forebearers in the faith. He cries out to Yahweh, help me. And the Lord answers, and his answer is the sufficient uh, source of his word, his revelation, that will ground him during this time of persecution. So here we have our titles, our runner-up titles, Smoke Damage, Wineskin, or Help Me. Well, here's a fourth one, Joseph's stanza. I thought to myself as we're studying the experience of Joseph in Genesis 37, which will be our text next week, how much he could relate to these passages. Joseph illustrates the plight of the psalmist, and quite literally so, especially when we read verses like 85, where he says, The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. And so Joseph could relate, could he not? The insolent brothers, not recognizing the word of God, revealed in the dreams of their sibling, held out hope for their own future, instead dug, if you will, a pitfall, or at least used the occasion of a well to throw their brother in, in their persecution of him, and so forth. Nevertheless, as we consider all these ways that the Bible is tied together in theme and in character, and in uh, circumstances that we can relate to, we should not move on without realizing that Jesus, as the suffering servant and spotless lamb, even more so than Joseph, perfectly corresponds to Psalm 119, 81 through 88. And Jesus, as the subject, if you will, anticipated in this psalm, without exception, perfectly embodies these circumstances. That is to say, Jesus, as the suffering servant and spotless lamb, did two things. Number one, he perfectly obeyed the law of God, and we see that dedication to the law in our text today. And number two, he offered up himself as he suffered unjustly and was killed at the hands of sinners on the cruel cross of Calvary and thus endured more hardship than anyone will ever know. 
The passion of Christ, in this sense, is the messianic anticipation of the calf stanza. And this section, although the majority of our time will be drawn taking application of it from our own lives, we should not move to application without realizing its prophetic weight. Jesus is the reason why Psalm 119.81-88 through 88 applies to us. That is, in Christ, the one who defeated the wickedness, or I'm sorry, defeated not just the wickedness of our sin, but took upon himself the justice that that sin deserves, grants to us by his imputed righteousness the ability to walk in obedience according to his law. So now, with this introduction, we move to the text. And as we do so, we recognize that we can also can relate to the cultural circumstances that no doubt surrounded the author. We can draw from Psalm 119.81 through 88 great encouragement, just as we have drawn encouragement from Peter's instructions in 2 Peter of late. What does it mean to be faithful and how do we stand consistent with our Christian convictions in a culture and in a pagan land that despises, denies, and even persecutes Christ and Christians? Well, one way that we can add to our ability to survive in times like these and even thrive is to add to our prayer and worship vocabulary concepts that will give us confidence and grace to stand. We can look to Psalm 119 in this way to draw inspiration from its themes and structure. So now let us consider the 11th stanza in light of our call to Christian faithfulness. Here's a heading for you. Faithfulness under persecution, this the presenting trial of stanza 11 requires the following. And these are summary themes according to pairs of verses in this section. Faithfulness under persecution requires, first of all, a full-fledged godly dependence, verses 81 and 82. Secondly, faithfulness in spite of persecution, it requires a faith-driven perseverance and endurance of the soul driven by faith. Thirdly, faithfulness under persecution requires ethical discernment, the knowledge of right and wrong, remaining convinced and confident in the difference between the two in spite of other things that might obscure that around us. And then finally, number four, faithfulness under persecution, according to the author of Psalm 119, inquires, requires intentional obedience. That's our basic outline this morning. Requirements for faithfulness under persecution. So first of all, full-fledged godly dependence. I want you to notice in this section, as so common throughout the psalm, the personal pronoun, which refers to the Lord himself. I think it's like a possessive personal pronoun, if I get my English correct. And the one I'm referring to is you or your. In verse 81, the psalmist says, My soul longs for your salvation. Kids, who is the psalmist speaking to? My soul longs for your salvation. Jesus, very good answer. We could say more broadly, Yahweh, the Lord himself. And Jesus certainly would, would apply. My soul longs in this art posture of prayer, speaking to Jesus, for your salvation. I long for your salvation, dear Jesus. Or general, more generally, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of our forefathers, the covenant-keeping God who has promised salvation through the coming Messiah. My soul longs for your salvation. 
Furthermore, another possessive pronoun, I hope in your word, your salvation, your word. My eyes long for your promise. Who owns the rights to assurance of the soul for the believer in any hardship? The Lord does exclusively. It is his salvation, his word, and his promise. Then he says, verse 82, when will you comfort me? The, the hope of the psalmist is invested in the exclusive foundation for which any uh, future comfort can be found, and that is in the Lord himself. Nothing more and nothing less than the Lord. This term, your, of course, is repeated throughout the psalm, and in this section, 85, speaking of the unbeliever, they do not live according to your law. That is to say, the Lord alone by according to his nature and what he has laid forth in his holy word, lays rights to right and wrong, a standard of morality and ethics. Furthermore, 86, all your commandments are sure. And of course, by implication, nothing else is. Everything else by way of claim, truth claim, righteousness or wickedness, uh, moral authority or virtues that any society at any particular time might celebrate, all of these are subject to the standard of God's commandments. It is Him and He alone who owns the rights to these kinds of things. And more, and even more so in verse 88, not just the law which proclaims objectively right and wrong, but the means whereby we can be justified also come into view in verse 88 when the psalmist says, In your steadfast love, in Hebrew, the hesed, that is the grace of the Lord extended to him, give me life. This full-fledged godly dependence uh, begins with this starting point that the Lord owns the rights to assurance of this that we often tell ourselves, it's all going to be okay. It's going to be all right. It's, think about your own meditations. We talk to ourselves in times of difficulty, don't we? When we're anxious or stressed about something, We'll be worried, and then we'll resolve in our minds, well, you know, it's going to be okay because. And as you think about that, those thoughts, those meditations that give you comfort, subject to the test of Psalm 119, what comes after because? It's going to be okay because, you know, there's a little bit more money in the account than we had last week to pay the bills. That's secondary concern. It's going to be okay because... Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. He provides my daily bread. That's the only reason there's anything in my account right now. So this is the way the orient, or the, our soul is to be oriented, and Psalm 119 acknowledges this. Faithfulness under hardship, especially persecution, requires a full-fledged godly dependence. Throughout the psalm, and especially in these first two verses, we find him referencing the Lord's salvation, the Lord's word, the Lord's promise, how easy it is, saints, to wander to alternative sources of salvation, hope, and comfort under extended and difficult trial. Note, this is the root of idolatry. This is the root of addictions and the escapism that's so popular and prevalent and tempting in our world today. When we wander to alternative sources of salvation, comfort, and hope, it's a great definition for addiction, great definition for idolatry, or for escapism, or whatever, uh, just basically terms that describe filling the void, what God alone owns exclusive rights to, by virtue of the jealousy for his glory and the substance of his power. 
full-fledged godly dependence. This, the psalmist says in so many poetic words, is a dependence of the soul and a dependence of the body. In verse 81, he says, my soul longs for your salvation. In verse 82, he says, my eyes long for your promise. His soul, the elements of our humanity that are immaterial, if you will, that would be the faculties of the mind and of the spirit. What are they? Things like your will, your heart, your desires, your intentions, your motivations, your decision, your decisions, your inspirations, and your ambitions. Faithfulness under persecution requires a full-fledged godly dependence in all these categories. My soul longs for your salvation. That is to say, my will longs for your salvation. That is to say, my heart places hope in your promise. My intentions find their purpose upon your word, and so on and so forth. Full-fledged godly dependence is an accountability metric to judge those things of our soul, those uh, desires and motivations and decisions and so on, and where, they, and where they truly find their encouragement and their grounding. What is hope? Well, hope, according to the scriptures, is certainty of future realities. And this certainty of future realities has a grounding. And it's grounded, according to the psalmist, in the word of God. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. In other words, I have certainty of the future based not upon the speculative insights of an expert class, based not upon a probability calculation based on my history, based not on, you know, everything that I can assess by way of analytical, you know, uh, scientific enterprise. No, my source of hope ultimately is based upon the word of God. I hope in your word. Now, in Christianity, we have a hope that survives all others when the hopes of the unbeliever prove to be delusional on that final day, what do we have to look forward to? An ascension unto glory through the grave by Jesus Christ, having defeated the first enemy on our behalf. We have the rewards of his suffering spilling over to our own account as we share in his glory, ruling and reigning with him in the new heavens and new earth. We have the fulfillment of the original intent of we, his creatures, made in his image to take dominion of the whole earth for his glory and namesake in the new heavens and new earth one day. These are the grounded realities. These are the basis of true hope. We have the hope of a final judgment where that which is overlooked and misunderstood and unjustly dealt with by the means of men and the court systems, the Supreme Court and the, you know, the litigious society in which we live, and the court proceedings of our day, we have a great judgment. We have the perfect reckoning, the omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful judge who sits upon the ultimate judgment seat to look forward to. These are true sources of hope. This is the hope, it's the certainty of future realities that is grounded in the word of God. We know these things because God, the author and finisher of our faith and this world and our salvation, has guaranteed them through his self-disclosure in his holy word. And this is more certainty than any other idol uh, could promise, and infinitely more so. And the dependency of our soul when connected to these realities becomes grounded in the word of God and leads to a full-fledged godly dependence 
that allows us to remain faithful in hardship, even faithful under persecution. Furthermore, dependency of the body. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? So if you will, the psalmist in referencing the mind and the eyes is incorporating all the faculties of our humanity, not just the immaterial, our thoughts and our meditations, but also our senses and the tangible, the way we interact with his created realm, the physical dimension. Yes, we need the necessary provisions, the daily bread and so forth. And our eyes are designed by our God to negotiate, you know, navigating life and the material world in which we live. This is why the Lord's Prayer encompasses both a dependency of God for everything, everything from our daily bread to resisting temptation. It acknowledges what the psalmist does in this section, that full-fledged godly dependence is from soul to body. And so, in summary, the psalmist says in these first two verses, poetically he sings, I long for your salvation with all my being. With all my being, body and soul, I long for your salvation. With all my being, I hope in your word. And with all my being, I long for your promise. And don't other portions of Scripture say something similar? In Him, we live and move and have our being. The reason for our existence is His grace in the first place, providentially bearing with this wicked world, and specifically in His salvation, saving us from the judgment our sin deserves. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And so, therefore, we should hold our soul and body accountable, all of our being, to long for His salvation, to hope in His Word, and to long for His promise. This is full-fledged godly dependence that equips the believer for hardship, even in times of persecution. Secondly, faith-driven perseverance, 83 and 84. For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? Will you judge those who persecute me? Universal statutes and universal judgments. Though he has become like a smoke-damaged wineskin, he has not forgotten the Lord's statutes. He remains in this posture of faith that regardless of how weak and depleted he feels, the statutes of the Lord have suffered no loss. They stand forever. Dave and I were in conversation this morning before service, and he just was compelled to quote that verse, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And the first witty thing that came to my mind is, in our world today, the genetically modified grass and flowers that are planted wither so much more quickly. So suffice it to say that for that which comes and goes, even our own strength and our own resolve, our physical capacity, and, you know, the aging process demonstrates to us our own frailty. In spite of all this, in contrast to the depleted nature and the fallenness of this world, subject to the decay of sin and, and so forth, nevertheless, there is something that is never shaken and never suffers loss and always stands and should be the cornerstone of our lives and can be counted upon. And what is it? Well, it's the statutes of the Lord. It's more than this, of course, but that's the phrase the psalmist uses to contrast the weakness of himself compared to a smoke-damaged wineskin and that which suffers no loss, the statutes, or other words he uses, law, promise, word, commandments, precepts, testimonies of the Lord. So imagine you have a home during the time when this psalm was written. 
Perhaps it's made of stone and has some log rafters, which would be maybe the most expensive part. And on top of those log rafters would be some thatch and so forth. And this provides a convenient place to store some of your vessels, among them a wineskin. And then you have a fire in the center where you do your cooking. Maybe there's a hole in the roof. I have no idea if this is an accurate representation of a, a boat at the time. But for this analogy, imagine such a thing. And then up in the rafters, you know, where you store your containers, you have a row of wineskins. Well, there's one wineskin that you haven't used for some time, years in fact. And you pull it down one day because you're going on a journey and you could use an extra canteen of water or wine to accompany your way. But there's something wrong with this wineskin. It's brittle in your hands. It's dusty. And at first when you fill it, it begins to leak. It has suffered and it is useless in that condition as a result of that smoke damage. The heat of the fire, the smoke in the room has drawn out all of the moisture from that animal skin and now it needs to be restored. It needs to be in like a humid environment and it has suffered, depleted and empty in these dry and arid conditions. Have you ever felt like that? In the trials that you face and the difficulties that God is in his providence has prescribed for you, have you ever felt drained? Have you ever felt empty? Have you ever felt cracked and dry? Have you ever felt useless? And does it feel like you're leaking and you can't contain the necessary things that you need? Trials tend to sap us in our frailty of our humanity. We're all familiar with this. Trials are draining. They can sap us of our joy, of our courage, of our resolve, of our faith, of our strength, of our hope, of our peace. What do we need if we feel like this? If we are a smoke-damaged wineskin? Well, we need the covenant revelation of the Lord to revitalize, to fill, and to restore us. The scriptures speak in beautiful metaphors about the power of God's word. And among those metaphors is the washing of the water of the word. And imagine that cracked dry wineskin and the washing of the water of the word, soaking it a bit in that water until it's restored to that condition that will now seal up the seams and make the leather supple again and rub in some oil. And however you imagine that metaphor working out. And thus through these means, the Faithfulness under persecution receives this necessary uh, reconstitution, revitalization, and restoration. And this is the purpose of the Word of God. When we listen to God's Word proclaimed each Sunday morning, so far as it's rightly divided, it has a restorative effect on your own souls. It keeps the leather of your uh, spiritual life supple, if you will, and able to contain the necessary resources to stand in hardship. It is that oil and it's that means, the lubricant, if you will, and the necessary uh, refilling that we must have if we are to survive in times of persecution. Do you believe that? Well, it takes faith. Faith that God's statutes are a balm for the soul. It takes faith that God's law and his precepts and his testimonies will prepare me and equip me and temper me for hardship. But they do. The statutes of the Lord are universal. Not only do they apply to everyone, everywhere, and at all times, 
but they apply and are powerful and therapeutic and necessary and a resource if we are empty and dry or if we are full and encouraged. You know, a phrase that's come to mind in the current situation in which we live that I've said to several people over the course of recent days is this. A crisis does not justify compromising the law of God. A crisis does not justify compromising the law of God. We are most susceptible to corruption of principle when we are weak and weary. Remember Job 2, 7 through 10? Job, under the superintendence of God, the oppression of the enemy, was reduced to a sick man scratching his boils with a broken piece of pottery on a hill outside his once you know, glorious home, loving family, and great livestock holdings. And what did his, his wife encourage him to do? You know, in so many words, she looks at this pitiful uh, picture of her once great husband, this dried up wineskin of a man. It says, curse God and die. What is it worth it? You know, what, and you see there how the crisis justifies the compromise and how the law of God can be despised or rejected when the test of hardship comes? What was Job's response? Well, he did not do that. And the scriptures say, testifying to his integrity, that in all of this, Job did not sin or charge the Lord with wrong. And what was it, I ask? As you read the course of his book, which is a, you know, a challenging read because of the depth of his trials, but what was it that revitalized Job in the end, if not the word of God, if not the statutes of the Almighty? Who made your mouth? Where are the storehouses? Show me, give me a tour of the great storehouses of snow in the north or the rain and the fertile fields. Who is it that causes the birth of the creatures on the hillsides of Lebanon? Who is it that tames Leviathan in the mighty seas? What were these? These were the statutes of the Lord, his self-revelation. And as Job listened, his perspective changed. And the statutes of the Lord, his promises, and the truth, and the hard truth, um, in many ways, of, who, of God's sovereignty and purposes, even over the suffering of his own life, begins to rub balm into the cracked and dry wineskin of Job's life. And he repents in dust and ashes, and the Lord restores him in manifold ways. So we need this reminder. It's a faith-driven perseverance. Faith that God provides the means to fill us when we feel empty, to give us resolve when we feel broken down and weary. Faith, furthermore, not just in those universal statutes that apply whether we're in desperate times or in prosperous, but faith in the ultimate judgments of the Lord. We've recognized this in the book of Second Peter's the theme as well. In 84, in our text, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? So notice, the question isn't, will you judge those who persecute me? Or why don't you judge those who persecute me? But when will you judge those who persecute me? This is a posture of faith. Faith in, this is that reckoning perspective that Peter recognizes. What does Peter point to in the course of his epistle to prepare the church for hardship? He says, look at creation. Look at the flood. Look at the coming second judgment. Look at the devastation of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot in the midst 
of, this, of these circumstances and realize that God will judge his enemies thoroughly, completely, exhaustively, and perfectly in his perfect time. How long must your servant endure? You know, if Peter and the author of Psalm 119 were encouraging one another, what a great conversation they would have. I have difficulty sometimes, the author of Psalm 119 might exclaim, because the wicked get away with so much, and it seems that the judgments of the Lord are slow in coming. Peter answers in this imaginary conversation, We must remain encouraged, brother. God has purposes in his patience. And among his purposes are that more might be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Let me ask you this question, saint in this place. Aren't you glad that the Lord did not kill the Apostle Paul and send him straight to hell when he deserved it so and involved with prosecuting and condemning the church and persecuting the people of God responsible for the death sentence over who knows how many Christians' lives? Aren't you glad that God did not judge Paul when he was that great persecutor as he self-identifies the chief of sinners during that time? I know I am. Because so much of the understanding of our faith is built upon the instrument that God shaped that one-time persecutor into, the chief missionary of the New Testament church. And with this perspective, that God will judge in time, and he can judge our sins upon the back of Jesus, and even the worst persecutor can be redeemed by the power of Christ's blood, here is sources, resources for us to stand in faith. A faith-driven perseverance. For those who don't repent, there is coming a day of judgment. But in the meantime, there is grace in God's patience. And we are called, as Peter says in so many words, to be stewards of that patience. As long as there remains today and judgment hasn't befallen us and the Lord has spared the well-deserving fire and brimstone on America, that we would hold out the message of the gospel. And there might be one more that will repent and believe. Faith-driven perseverance. Faithfulness under persecution requires us. Thirdly, full-fledged godly dependence, faith-driven perseverance. Number three, faithfulness under persecution requires ethical discernment, knowing right from wrong. 85 and 86, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. So you see a distinction here, a contrast. There are two things, there are two orientations towards life or worldview or ethical calculations, if you will. There's God's law. And then there's everything else, which is a pitfall. There's pitfall, it's danger and destruction that's pictured in that imagery, or there's God's law. Where will you stand? The firm foundation or the shifting sand of future judgment? Then 86, all your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. So there's falsehood. There's an accounting of things according to the authority of the deceiver, which is limited, and he will be judged as well, Satan. Then on the other hand, there's the Lord's commandments. We need to understand the difference, even under pressure. Ethical discernment. So the author of Psalm 119 is a victim of lawlessness, you could say. He says, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. The lawlessness of the unbeliever has resulted in the persecution of the author. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. But he recognizes in the same phrase, in the same sentence, they do not live according to your law. In spite of the hardships, he fortifies himself 
against that panic that can sometimes set in that would cause him to doubt his Lord and his faith. This is tempting under trials. If the wicked are getting away with persecuting you in the meantime, or if there's hardship that you're called to uh, embrace personally or that you witness in others, those most popular questions, you know, the most frequently asked questions of humans in suffering uh, come to, you know, the fore, don't they? Why God? Why me? If God is good, you know, then why does he allow this? There's a whole category of philosophy and theology called theodicy, which is given to answer some of these objections. If God is good, why does he allow suffering? That ultimately is the question that this whole branch of apologetics or philosophy deals with, theology deals with. Well, there are answers, but let's be honest. Usually the question is insincere. With the person who asks the question, why God, why me, and if you are good, why do you allow this? Does the person asking that question, are they willing to hear this answer? Because the Lord's ways are higher than your ways, because you are not the center of the universe. How dare the, pot, how dare the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Because the Lord, deserve, or the Lord exclusively owns sovereignty to everything, including your own suffering. He may reveal to you why, but he's not obligated to do so. If he waits or if you never have an answer to that question, will you yet serve him? Now, most people who ask those questions, you know, they do so insincerely. They proceed with this sort of implicit condition. Okay, God, unless I get an answer to why you've done this, or unless I can resolve this apparent contradiction that you are both good and allow suffering, then, you know, I'm going to hold my service to you or my confession of absolute faith in your ways and your word in suspicion. I deserve more information. Oh, do you? You deserve more information? Fallen, broken, hell-bent, judgment-worthy sinner? I don't think so. You will never know everything. You are not God. The promise of Satan is that you can be as God and have every question answered. But the posture of faith is that God is wise enough to control my life and all circumstances and this universe, and he doesn't need to tell me every detail. There's discernment that is necessary in these conditions, but it's harder when you're the victim. It's harder when lawless men have unjustly wronged you. It's harder when you're the object of abuse. It's more difficult when you're falsely accused. Yet in spite of these pressures, the pressure of victimhood by lawlessness or victimhood by falsehood, nevertheless, the psalmist retains his ethical discernment. And he does not leave that fixed reference point of the law of the Lord. He knows that what the wicked men have done to him is wrong. By what standard? By the law of God. And he knows that those accusations against him are indeed false. Why? Because the commandments of the Lord are sure. Ultimately, he could also know this if he read Proverbs 26, 26 through 27. And that's a glorious passage which says the following. Uh, Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. So you may dig a pit, 
and try to trap God and his purposes and his people. You may send a stone rolling against his church, but the scriptures testify, and so does history, that the gates of hell will not prevail against her, let alone your stone or your pit. Recognize that in an age of lawlessness and in an age of falsehood, faithfulness under persecution requires knowing the difference and standing firm. And this is, what the, this is where the psalmist stands. So that's number three. And now we move to our final point in Psalm 119, the calf section. Faithfulness under persecution requires intentional obedience. Again, in summary, full-fledged godly dependence, faith-driven perseverance, ethical discernment, and finally, intentional obedience, 87 and 88. They have almost made an end of me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The psalmist is making plans to obey the Lord. And this is obedience that requires a purpose, a commitment, an intention to. It's obedience unto his last breath. Verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. And it's obedience as a life purpose. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Second Peter, I just want to remind you of this verse because it corresponds so well. It's a great cross-reference for the heart of the psalmist. We covered this in the summary of the book last week, 2 Peter 1, 15 and 16, or 14 and 15. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. He has also said in verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. He says this knowing that his death is imminent, the putting off of his body will be soon. So what, were, what will your last words and actions be? If you received a prognosis of a malignant disease, how would you frame that so-called bucket list? That's a popular phrase in our culture, isn't it? Bucket list. If you search YouTube for videos labeled as such, you'll find a lot of, uh, you know, self-indulgence, entertainment, sensationalism, self-aggrandizement, and banality, won't you? Oh, before I die, I want to, whatever, climb Mount Everest. I want to, you know, um, parachute from a plane or bungee jump or see the world or visit Europe or, uh, you know, whatever, propose to my wife in a castle. I mean, there's a million things that are on people's bucket list. But all of these, obviously, should be secondary to the highest purpose for which we are created. Peter, knowing that the end of days were upon him and he only had so much time to live, made his bucket list pretty simple. There's only like one thing in the bucket. Teach the church the gospel. <laughs> Teach the gospel to the fledgling church. Encourage the saints. Spread the news, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. That was Peter's bucket list. Similarly, in Psalm 119.87, though his enemies have almost made an end to him, he resolves to not forsake the precepts of the Lord intentional obedience unto the bitter end. 
faithfulness even unto martyrdom is the call that will allow you to stand in the day of persecution. And as we see even God's sovereign purposes in martyrdom itself, it is quite powerful. Did you know, as the scriptures say, Abel's blood preaches the gospel from the ground? It cries out for judgment. It cries out for judgment for the lawless sin of his brother and all who he represents that take matters of life and death, their own future, into their own hands. Even the death of the martyrs provides a witness in their demise of the judgment that yet hangs over the head of those who persecuted them. And are you willing to have your life serve such a high purpose? We understand glory in a glorious death, don't we, even in our culture today? Noble soldiers giving their life for our American liberties and freedoms, dying on the battlefield, are celebrated. We pin purple hearts and medals upon people who take great risk, even at the cost of their life, for something that is so virtuous and valuable, so selfless, and carries generational implications. Fighting to preserve, you know, our culture and our nation that will hopefully hold out hope, liberty, freedom, prosperity for future generations. How much more ought this honorable facing of the possibility of martyrdom be held and treasured in the heart of a believer? What a great privilege it is to die for the Lord and for his name. They have almost made an end to me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. And of course, you can overdo or you can swing too far to one side and get this martyr complex and assume that, you know, there's uh, just value in someone uh, giving their life or whatever. But the calling is this, to serve the Lord with your life no matter what comes. This is the intentional obedience unto the last breath exemplified by Peter and the author of Psalm 119. And then we have this final life purpose given to us in verse 88. In your steadfast love, give me life. So again, he's not asking to be martyred. He's asking for life, if God should be gracious. But it's life for a purpose, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. This is a great example of grounded petition. We are praying for people to be healed from diseases in our midst right now. We prayed for people to be healed even this morning. I'm sure you've prayed for yourself or for others that the Lord would give you life, deliverance from a malady or an affliction, that the Lord would protect and preserve your family but Gene asked this question recently out of Romans. Yes, we are saved, but we are saved for what? To what end? Well, the author of Romans, Paul, recognizes it, and so does the author of Psalm 119. It's to glorify the Lord, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His testimonies. In your steadfast love, give me life, not so I can pursue that bucket list of self-indulgent things that I always wanted to do before you know, I check off this sort of self-centered list of goals and ambitions? No, but that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth, that I might proclaim in my healing or my encouragement, my strengthening, my deliverance, that it is God who has saved me. Thus, he deserves worship, and he is the only hope of salvation, provisionally delivering you from affliction in the meantime, and ultimately delivering you from the affliction to our sin unto his glorious presence one day in heaven the new heavens and new earth. This is the intentional obedience that the author is resolved to, uh, 
resolved in, in his mind unto his last breath and as a life purpose, he makes it his aim to serve the Lord. He doesn't ask for deliverance for selfish reasons, but rather to glorify God by keeping his testimonies. And thus in this calf section, the trial of persecution, we have some tools, do we not? We have resources for faithfulness in our own times of hardship. And again, just in summary, faithfulness under persecution, where do we go to be reinforced for this calling? We go to the scriptures. What do they tell us? Full-fledged godly dependence, faith-driven perseverance, ethical discernment, and intentional obedience. Let's close in prayer that the Lord would fortify us with these means. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy that not only, Lord, calls us to difficult uh, trials and and challenging quests in our life to glorify you, but also equips us for those purposes that you have. We thank you, Lord, that the Spirit uses your word proclaimed and for us, Lord, received by the power of the Spirit in the inward being to change us, to grow our convictions and our strength, Lord Jesus, to stand in a day when our faith is challenged. I pray today, Lord, as we have studied your scriptures in First and Second Peter, and as we've considered your word proclaimed in Psalm 119, that you would help us to grow in our love and appreciation, that we would long for your salvation, that we would hope in your word, that our eyes would long for your promise, and that through these we would be comforted. May your word, your promise, your statutes, your law, your commandments, your precepts, and your testimonies, Lord Jesus, may they be our delight And may we, through this way, glorify you and grow in our calling to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Finally, Lord, if there are any in the hearing of this message who cannot relate to these desires because they are still caught in their sins and transgressions, I pray that you would move them to repent, to turn from their sin, and to believe that in Jesus Christ is their salvation. Only in his steadfast love can they have life and life eternal. Lord, in all this, may your church be edified, equipped. May you call the lost unto repentance and faith. And may we, Lord, go forward from this place, growing your kingdom as you grant us the ability through applying your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.